There was an old farmer, a Texan, who cut his hand on the gate when he was working with the cattle. And he went to the doctor, and as the doctor was stitching up his hand, they began to talk about politics. And they got onto the topic of the governor of their state. And the old Texan said, Well, you know, he's a post-turtle. And the doctor looked at him, and he said, A post-turtle? Yeah, a post-turtle. He says, You know, when you're driving down a country road, and you come across a fence post with a turtle balanced on top, that's a post-turtle. And the old man saw the puzzled look on the doctor's face. And so he continued, and he said, you know, he didn't get there by himself. He doesn't belong there. He doesn't know what to do when he's up there. And you just want to help the poor little guy get down. That's a post-turtle. Well, brothers and sisters, I feel a little bit like a post-turtle this morning. After following Brent and Tice and Matt... And Scott, and Tice, so that's Tice twice, baby. Uh, and <laughs> but we're here to conclude a Connect Conference 2018. We're here to look at the Word of God one more time together as we finish our time together, and I want, to, I want to bring you one more encouragement. Was, as I was cleaning up my stuff last night, I saw our, our financial report, our annual report, and it just occurred to me, how simple will it be? I mean, what was the number? $364 per congregation. I mean, that's chump change, right? That's peanuts, so go home and find some peanuts and send them back to the fellowship. If you've been blessed by Scott and Di's ministry, if you've been blessed by worshiping together, if you've been blessed by connecting with other people and hearing the testimony of what God's doing in their lives and being able to share the testimony of what God's doing in your life and sharing the struggles and the difficulties that we all face in walking through a fallen world, if that's been helpful to you, Take that experience back to your congregation and let them know what the Connect conferences and what the Engage conferences do for your heart and your soul. And I don't think finding $364 will be all that difficult. So, we are delighted that you made the journey up here. For the, the folks who came from the least distance, it's about five and a half hours and I can't imagine how far some of you came. So praise God for that. Thank you so much for choosing to come to Rochester, Minnesota, and encourage us and allow us to encourage and to minister to you. So we're up here in the frozen north, um, and we spend about five months of the year under ice and snow. And so, as you might imagine, basketball is pretty popular up here. And... My four children all played basketball on various teams during this last year, uh, but my oldest son, Evan, uh, played varsity for Schaefer Academy. He was uh, center on the varsity team, 
And they had a good season. They went 18 and 8. And that meant that there were a lot of hard-fought games in there. 18 and 8, you know, that, that's the kind of record where you're, you're really fighting for it. Uh, and so, of course, in basketball, there's the change of possession, right? The one team loses possession of the ball, and you've got to get back on defense. And as the, the team that's on offense is driving down the court, and we could hear another school parent yelling out to Evan and to the other guys, Be strong, Evan! Be big, Evan! Be strong! Why has he got to do that? Because Dan Orvis and everybody else knows that if Evan plays timidly, if Evan goes back scared, they're going to be overwhelmed by the offense and we're going to lose the game. And so Dan Orvis had those encouragements for Evan. Be strong. And that takes us to Ephesians chapter 6, where we're going to conclude this conference. In verses 1 through 4, Paul continues his instructions on relationships within the family. In verses 5 through 9, he delivers timeless principles related to work and authority in the context of slaves and masters. In verses 10 through 20, he exhorts his readers to be strong using the Lord's power and brings out the well-known armor of God. And in verses 21 through 24, he offers final greetings. Now I'd like to say the big theme of this chapter is be strong. And this theme couldn't be more relevant to our lives. Over the next six months, until we meet again for the Engage conference, there are going to be a thousand opportunities for you to be strong or to be weak. Most of you are going back to positions of vocational ministry, and you will face pressures and demands that would astound your congregation if they understood the gravity of what you face. You may be asked to compromise on things that shouldn't be compromised. In situation after situation, you will have to decide what is appropriate to share and what is confidential, what you must keep to yourself. You will face the pressures of family and ministry and finances and extended family, and all those things can put you right up to the edge sometimes. You may be asked to come to the bedside of a person only hours from entering eternity. You will have to choose how you manage your time and resources for God's glory and for the good of your neighbor. Day after day after day. Or your call may be to support the man who's doing all those things. And that may be the more difficult call after all. So let's turn once again to God's Word and let Him teach us, as the church, how to be strong in every area of life. Would you pray with me? Father, it's Your Word. It's not my Word. It's not Scott's Word. It's Your Word. So we ask that You would honor Your Word this morning, that You would speak to the heart of each person here in the way that they need to be spoken to. God, we are, we're just servants. We're, we're just little people. 
Um, but you are a great God, so magnify yourself through your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. One of the building blocks of society is the nuclear family. And one of the building blocks of the church is whole families worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ together. And with that in mind, it's no surprise that Satan has decided that the family would be a good thing to attack in 20th and 21st century America. See, he knows that if the family falls apart, children and adults are less able to serve effectively. They're less able to be healthy and whole inside. And so in contrast, Paul's instructions here make up a brief recipe for enduring families. Consider... When children obey their parents, it brings blessing to the family. There is a protection, a physical protection, and a spiritual protection over those children because almost all parents have the good of their children, the children's best interests in mind. And so when they obey, they receive a blessing, and indeed the whole family receives a blessing, more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more of all of the fruits of the Spirit. And notice that it says they are to obey in the Lord. Young people, I see you over there. I see you. Young people, that means it's going to take faith to trust in the opinions of these middle-aged people who dress funny (laughs) and think that they have ideas about how late you should stay up or which friends you should hang out with or what skills you should grow in and develop. And I'm not saying that you don't have conversations with mom and dad as you work through these things, but when a parental decision is made, you need to support it, and you need to act in faith that God is working through your parents. And of course, honor goes beyond obedience. As we esteem one another, we build relationships that stand up to the pressures of a difficult world. Look again at verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. More literally, the ESV translates it, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Well, we parents have a big role in honor in the family too. How do you provoke your children to anger? I mean, there's the obvious ways, like you can come up and flick their ears while they're playing Minecraft on the computer. (laughs) I might be guilty of that. (laughs) Um, Or picking on them in front of their siblings. Uh, But then there's less obvious ways, like do the rules change in your household? One day, it's okay to play with toys in the kitchen, and the next day it's not. Um, yesterday, it was fine to lie in bed till 9.30 a.m., but today it's not. 
Yesterday, it was fine for me to text my friends during dinner, but today it's not. Children thrive when they know what is expected of them. Honored parents and thriving discipled children make for strong families that are basically a fortress against the storms of life. Let's go to 6, 5 through 9. We're going to have a lot of fun this morning, aren't we? Mm. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven... And there is no favoritism with him. And then we come to a section that basically deals with authority in work relationships. Now, we don't exactly have slavery today, but we do have employer-employee, contractor-subcontractor, and all those kinds of relationships. And in this segment, Paul's opening up a Christian view of work and the ethics that are to characterize the Christian worker. The literal Greek of verse 5, where, where when I read respect and fear, the literal Greek there says fear and trembling. Okay? Probably not because your master is so scary, but because your obedience to him is a microcosm of your obedience to Jesus Christ. So if you've ever wondered, should I put sincere honest effort into my paid work? Should I obey my employer's instructions? The answer is yes. Yes. God gives us work for our good, for our growth, for our discipleship, and perhaps most practically to express God's good to our neighbor. When I do my work well, like slaves of Christ, verse 6 I create something that is useful and beneficial to my neighbor. I think of the great reformer Martin Luther who said of this idea, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So there's the issue of good work, but also... In the original context, uh, there's the issue of human relationships. You see, in the original context of this passage, it's likely that a lot of the slaves were saved and a lot of the masters were unsaved. And so as you performed your work, your service to the master with excellence, what you were really saying is, my God is excellent. Jesus Christ is excellent, and he is at work in me. It was a testimony to the masters when the slaves gave their excellent work. See, that's what happens 
in the little book of Philemon, where Paul basically says, hey, this guy came to me, and he was in rebellion, and he was uh, probably thieving from you, and who knows what all else, and he was useless to you. But I'm sending him back to you as Onesimus, as useful. I'm sending him back as a brother, so receive him as a brother in the Lord, and treat him kindly. And if there's anything against his account, charge it to my account. Right. So, the Christian employee and the Christian employer have a duty to one another. <clears throat> and when we fulfill these obligations of our calling, we glorify Jesus and we have another layer of strong relationships in the body of Christ. And then we come to the most famous passage in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist." with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray for me also, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should." We've arrived at one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament, which can be a challenging thing to discuss with 50 pastors and their excellent families. <clears throat> the whole discussion is both intensely spiritual and intensely practical. You see, Paul pictures the church as a spiritual army getting ready to do battle for the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom. Now here's some things we ought to keep in mind as we go to war. First, I think we ought to acknowledge that it is a war. The universe is a battleground between the forces of God and the forces of everybody else. And we know who wins, but this battle is still raging. Second, we ought to acknowledge that it's our temptation to put the battle we face on a human level. And I suspect that pastors struggle with this just as much 
or maybe more than anyone else. If that guy would just leave the congregation, if these folks would learn to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, if my wife would just stop criticizing me in front of everybody else, right? And the list goes on. Certainly, there are difficult and divisive people. But God is urging us to lift up our eyes and remember that the ultimate reality is not earthbound. The ultimate reality is spiritual, and therefore the battle has to be fought there. Now there's a huge emphasis in this passage on standing. Four times, Paul uses a form of stanai, to stand in the Greek as he describes this spiritual battle. And I have a thought that when we hear spiritual warfare, we think laying hands on somebody to cast a demon out of them or praying over someone to deliver them from something. And that is spiritual warfare, but it's only an aspect of spiritual warfare. There's much, much more to it. Standing implies that something is coming. That it's trying to knock us over and render us ineffective. It kind of reminds me of canoeing. Now, I'm not a man known for my myriad of recreations, but, but in 2012, in the summer, I bought a canoe. And I like to go out on small and medium-sized rivers. And I take one or two of the kids if I can get them to come with me. Uh, but we canoe, and one of the things you've got to watch out for is after a heavy rain, the current is strong, and if you're not very alert to what's going on, you can be smashed into dead tree branches that are hanging down into the water. Or if you're out of the canoe, uh, you can just be knocked over by the current itself. And so there's this need to keep your feet under you. And I think that's what Paul's getting at, is sometimes the current of a godless culture or the temptations of our own flesh can be frighteningly strong, threatening to knock us loose from our spiritual moorings. And you know, we've seen that in other fellowships and other denominations, where people have gotten knocked adrift and they're no longer basing their lives and their ministries on the timeless Word of God. And... We simply cannot allow that to happen. So let's take a look at the weapons that are available to us. The first thing Paul offers us is truth, which he pictures as being wrapped around the waist or fastened like a belt. Friends, we could spend all day here. Jesus told us that he is the truth, not just that he speaks the truth, that he is the truth, and that everyone on the side of truth listens to him. Francis Schaeffer called this truth with a capital T, that there is unchanging moral and spiritual truth that lasts from today until eternity future. Truth that stands firm regardless of which way the winds of culture and the popular thought blow. Listen to Jesus again, saying, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we cling to God's word. 
which Jesus declared truth in John 17, 17, when he said, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. We speak truth, we live truthfully, we graciously call attention to a lie that's being perpetuated. The truth protects the church from Satan's lies. The next weapon in our arsenal is the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness, the quality of being or acting in line with divine character and moral law. In other words, when back in chapter 5, verse 1 of Ephesians, we were told, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, that was a call to righteousness. And when our moral and spiritual character comes in line with God's heart, God's character, (coughs) that is righteousness. But I have to admit to you, if I were going to be clothed in the armor of my own righteousness, it would probably have about the strength of that cardboard that they make cereal boxes out of. And it would have holes and rot and decay from 45 years of fleshly attitudes and disobedient thoughts and so forth. And if I had to trust in my own righteousness, I would despair. But then I come to Romans chapter 1 with all those before me who have despaired of their own righteousness. And I find verse 17 which says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now I discover again that through my faith in Jesus, Jesus gives me his righteousness that he earned Righteousness I could not earn. And as I learn to appropriate his righteousness, I am both protected by him and I grow in my experience of the righteousness of God. And then we come to the feet. Paul says we ought to put on the footwear of the readiness of the gospel of peace, which is a lot of genitives in a row. Yeah, that was a nerd joke. There you go. <laughs> this probably this probably harkens back to Isaiah fifty two, the verse that exclaims the beauty of the feet of those who bring good news. We cannot overestimate the importance of knowing the gospel, living the gospel, preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, and experiencing all aspects of the gospel in our own lives. If Christ had not died for sins and raised, been raised, again from the dead, there would be no reason for us to gather around and study this book. Okay? Because all it would show us is our inability But Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and he is seated on high right now, and he is interceding for us, and it is ultimately worthy for us to study and live the book. So, the gospel is true for all times, in all places, and we must, must 
continue to be gospel-centered people. And then he says to take up the shield of faith. The issue of faith, believing what God has said, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve wavered in their faith and brought us the conditions that we have today. Noah believed God enough to spend 120 years building an ark. Abraham believed God's promise, and God credited it to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. The whole of Scripture speaks very highly of faith. Very highly. It's a gift to be exercised, right? From the patriarchs to the Psalms to Jesus' delighted claim of the centurion that he had not found such great faith in all Israel. But I said it's a gift to be exercised, and it's called the shield of faith. Obviously, shields are defensive, and Paul uses it that way. He says the shield of faith can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, how does this work? We know Satan is a master of discouraging followers of Jesus Christ. For example, he might attack he might attack God's character. Look at you. You're such a good Christian. You've been following Jesus for 25 or 35 or 45 years. Why is he allowing this garbage into your life? I don't think he's a very good master. Or he may attack you. Look at you. You've been a Christian for 25 years and you still don't pray on a daily basis. And those same sins that you struggle with year after year after year, you're still struggling with them. I think God's about to cut you loose. These moments, I believe, happen to just about all Christians. Satan launches the fiery darts of God-doubt, self-doubt, insecurity, distrust, conflict, sexual temptation, condemnation, complacency, and the rest. But all of them can be deflected and extinguished if only we will lift up the shield of faith. How do you do this? You declare your faith in the promises of God that defeat the enemy. For example, therefore, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I am in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no condemnation for me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I am a recipient of grace. Therefore, I know that God's grace is active and working in my life. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. God, I will continue to preach and live in your gospel because it is your power for us. These and many other scriptures give us the strength to resist toppling into the tar pits that Satan has set up for us. And the opposite of toppling, of course, is standing. Then Paul comes to the helmet of salvation, which is a unique word in the Greek. Let's see if I can say this. 
perikephalia. There we go, perikephalia, uh, which means around the head. Your salvation is the beginning and the core of the Christian life, but there's much more to being saved than a rescue from hell. In this passage, Paul gives an image of salvation as protection for our minds, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who became yours at the moment of your salvation, provides both the everlasting peace and the ability to experience Christ in place of the world's lousy moral and spiritual reasoning. And the final weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which Paul tells us is the Word of God. And every pastor will be quick to point out that the Word is our only is our only offensive weapon, right? Uh, it is the weapon that beats back the gates of hell. It is the weapon that reveals the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It is the weapon that explains how God dealt with sin once for all through the death of his son. It is the weapon that contains the offer and the conditions for eternal life. It is the weapon that teaches us how to live and how to instruct others in victorious Christian living. It is the weapon that we Bereans keyed in on from Acts 17.11, where Luke recorded (coughs) that the Bereans received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures, (coughs) searched the scriptures to be sure that what Paul said was true. To even begin to live up to our name, To even begin to live up to our name, we need to be in the Word. We must be well-read in Scripture and eager to hear and examine good teaching based on that Word. And if the Word is really a sword, that means we can learn to wield it skillfully in the daily interactions of life. Paul concludes this segment by talking about prayer, which here isn't pictured as a weapon, though the great Puritan preacher John Bunyan did turn it into one for his novel, The Pilgrim's Progress. He called it all prayer, but didn't specify what it did, what what it looked like, or what exactly it did. I used to teach this novel in English 9, and this... uh, This weapon, the all prayer, uh, was pictured by a student as a rocket with the Christian sitting on top of the rocket and then riding the all prayer to victory in Christ. Well, however you picture it, um, we need to use it. I'm going to trust that you've already heard plenty about prayer this week. But I encourage you to be faithful in prayer. Praying alone, praying together with others, praying for needs, praying for vision, praying for purpose. All those things. I can tell you that the leaders in the Berean Fellowship pray for each other. 
I get texts from Scott Mathis all the time, <clears throat> praying for you, brother, on my knees for you, brother. And that encourages my heart, right? That helps me keep going. So pray for other people and let them know, <clears throat> right? Let them know that you're praying. Um, it's interesting that that's the only thing that Paul asked the believers at Ephesus to do for him, right? He said, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. The final section of the text is greetings. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So, Paul closes this letter by strengthening personal connections. There are personal greetings and encouragements. And I think it's immensely fitting as we close this Connect conference to remember that we truly can love one another. We can love in a way that the world does not love because we have Christ and his love living inside of us. Jesus loved us first and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And beloved people are strong people, strong in their love, strong in their obedience, strong in their desire to see God work in the situations of everyday life and ministry. So, to all of you who are about to strap on the seatbelt and drive over six to eight hours of the most boring country God ever created, <clears throat> know that we appreciate you, we cherish you, we love you, and we're glad that you made the journey up to Rochester, Minnesota, because we are members of the same family. We are brothers and sisters with Christ, our elder brother, and God, our eternal Father. And that makes it more than worth the miles that we travel to be together with one another and to fellowship. So I'm going to pray, and then Scott's going to come and lead us in communion.